Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 34, The Bushy-Haired Stranger. It was a warm spring evening, May 19, 1983. 28-year-old Diane Downs was driving along a country road in her red Nissan Pulsar with her three children, 8-year-old Christy, 7-year-old Cheryl, and little Danny who was three. It was around 10 p.m., and the soothing sound that emanated from the car's engine created a peaceful soundscape that had lulled the children to sleep. A welcome reprieve from their hectic new life. Diane was a single mom who had recently moved her little family from Arizona to Oregon to be closer to her parents. It would be an understatement to say that the proverbial road of life had been windy. Diane was a single mom raising three children. Her ex was more than a thousand miles away. It hadn't been easy, but Diane was making the best of it, and tonight was no exception. The evening had started as an impromptu adventure for her and the kids, an opportunity to do a little sightseeing. It was pitch dark on that lonely road. The only light guiding the mother with her precious cargo was from the compact car's headlights, which illuminated the vastness with a little help from a quarter slice of moon. Was the young mother contemplating all the twists and turns in her life, which had led her on this new path in Oregon? Diane had grown up in Phoenix, Arizona. After high school, she'd attended a Baptist Bible college in California. That didn't last long, and after a year, she had moved back to Arizona, where she reunited with her high school sweetheart, Steve Downs. The young couple tied the knot in 1973, Diane was overjoyed when she and Steve had their first child, Christy, in 1974. Two years later, she would give birth to Cheryl. A marriage isn't always easy for any couple. Money was always tight, and their relationship was tempestuous. They were young parents, and they also worked together at the same mobile home manufacturing company in Arizona. It became really awkward when Diane had an affair with a co-worker, and she became pregnant. She would give birth to her third child, her little boy, Danny, in 1979. Even though Steve knew that Danny was not his biological son, he still accepted him as his own. Not long after, their relationship came apart at the seams, divorcing in 1980. Now, three years later, Diane and the kids had moved to Oregon after she received a transfer from the post office where she'd worked previously in Arizona and had recently started her part-time job as a mail carrier just six weeks ago. New to the area, Diane was still trying to make friends and create a new life for her and her children. And on that night, on a whim, she decided to get the kids out of their stuffy duplex to go on a little adventure. They had gotten dinner at a fast food restaurant and then headed out of the city to the country looking for her coworker's home. Diane's coworker, Heather, had shared that she was thinking of buying a horse. So later, when Diane had been reading the one ads in the newspaper and saw an ad for a horse rental, she was certain that Heather would be interested. The problem was she didn't know Heather's phone number. 
that's when she decided to make a night of it. That her and the kids would drive out to Heather's house, show her the ad, and do a little sightseeing along the way. Diane and the kids rolled up to Heather's home, unannounced. They would drop off the advertisement, chatted a bit, and then they were on the road again, headed for home. It wasn't long before the kids were fast asleep, and Diane's favorite song came on the radio. Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. We were just out, I guess, sightseeing, I guess you'd say. And the kids got tired. They fell asleep in the car, so I decided to just head on home. On another sightseeing whim, Diane made an impromptu turn on the old Mohawk Road, which was even more desolate. Not long after making that turn, Diane was surprised when she saw a bushy-haired stranger who seemed to just appear out of some brush. But I saw a road I hadn't been on before. We liked to take back roads and just went down that road. And there was a guy standing in the road, flagging me down. Diane thought that he needed help. So she stopped the car and got out. I asked him what was the problem. He said, I want your car. And I said, gee, I'd be kidding. I mean, how many people really do that in real life? They don't. Once Diane was outside of the car, the bushy-haired stranger flashed a gun and demanded Diane hand over her car keys. But Diane refused. And the stranger pointed his gun through the driver's side window and opened fire at her three children. After shooting the children, the man demanded the car keys once again and tried to grab them. But Diane was able to shift away, and then she pretended to throw the car keys into the bushes. In the few precious seconds, as the killer was trying to make sense of where the keys were. Diane was able to slide back into the driver's seat with her keys still firmly in her hand. She kept a level head and was able to stick the car key into the ignition, but by then the shooter had realized she hadn't thrown the keys into the bushes after all. And that's when he pointed the gun at her and shot her in the forearm. Despite being shot, Diane's foot was already on the gas pedal and she peeled away, leaving the man in the darkness. Remember, this was a time before smartphones. If Diane had any chance of saving her children, she'd have to floor it all the way to the hospital. It was 1048 when Diane pulled her red Nissan Pulsar into the emergency room bay. She couldn't get out of her car fast enough. She ran inside and screamed, Somebody just shot my kids! The emergency room staff, used to seeing every kind of accident and injury, rushed to the car and were stunned. As they took in the horrific sight inside the car, the interior was soaked with blood. And the unimaginable, three crumpled little bodies, children who'd been shot at close range, clung to life. Seven-year-old Cheryl, alone in the front passenger seat, was already at death's door. They rushed her to the ER, even though she appeared beyond help. The team went to work, frantically doing everything in their power to restore life to this little girl. But it was too late, and not long after, she was pronounced dead. Eight-year-old Christy had been shot twice in the chest, and little Danny, just three years old, had been shot in the back. Christy and Danny had lost a lot of blood. As they were rushed into emergency surgery, amid the chaos and confusion, police were called to the hospital. As Diane began to explain what happened, her demeanor just felt off, especially in contrast to the emergency room staff, trained professionals who just couldn't hold back the tears. 
when they had seen what had been done to the children. Given the industry that they were in, they knew that people handle grief and trauma differently. It wasn't fair to judge how a person acts in the moment. But still, what she said about her children, when they were being worked on in three different operating rooms, strangers doing anything and everything they could to save her children's lives, and to hear her say, God, just do what's best. If they gotta die, let them die, but don't let them suffer. Her attitude seemed too calm. The surgeon who operated on Christy would later recall some troubling comments that Diane made at the hospital, like saying, quote, Boy, this has really spoiled my vacation. And she also complained about her children's blood all over the inside of her car. Quote, That really ruined my new car. I got blood all in the back of it. It seemed that Diane was preoccupied with something other than the welfare of her children. Emergency workers would tend to Diane's minor gunshot wound, and they noted that Diane had taken the time, before racing to the hospital, to wrap a towel around her wounded forearm, which made people wonder what kind of mom would do that when her children were literally bleeding out in the car and she only had a minor gunshot wound. Investigators interviewed Diane at the hospital, and she described to them her encounter with this bushy-haired stranger who had attempted to carjack her vehicle. Law enforcement galvanized. An all-points bulletin was issued to be on the lookout for a bushy-haired stranger, who they believed could still be roaming the country backroads. An intense manhunt was underway. A detective was so surprised by Diane's demeanor, how calm she appeared and level-headed, that he actually asked her if she'd be willing to leave the hospital as her children were undergoing surgery to show them where the shooting had taken place. And Diane agreed to help. So she directed them to the scene. A forensic team was able to recover spent 22 caliber bullet casings, but they didn't find a weapon. When Diane returned to the hospital, she was told that Cheryl had succumbed to her injuries. Diane's calm didn't waver by the news that her little girl was dead. She was also given an update on Christy, who'd been touch and go. They didn't think she'd make it. When she was brought into the hospital, her pupils were dilated and her blood pressure was almost non-existent. Her injuries were so severe that during surgery, Christy's heart actually stopped and she suffered a stroke, but she'd made it through. Diane was also given an update about Danny. He too would survive, but her little boy would probably never walk again, that he was permanently paralyzed from the waist down. Diane seemed to be surprised that her little boy would survive, and she said, do you mean the bullet missed his heart? Gee whiz. Diane gave a description of the bushy-haired man, that he was white, in his late 20s, 5'9", about 150 to 170 pounds, that he had dark hair and a stubbly beard. She also said that he was wearing a Levi's jacket and an off-colored t-shirt. An artist drew a sketch, and this was circulated to the media, and it wasn't long before the story spread about the mother and her children who'd been shot on a lonely stretch of a country road, you can bet that the community was on edge. I mean, if a man was willing to flag down an unsuspecting mom with her three little children and then shoot them at close range, and then the mother, who was barely able to escape, and that this guy was still on the loose, what else was this killer capable of? No one was safe. A dangerous gunman was on the loose. 
Police knocked on doors and canvassed the rural areas, looking for anything that could help them find the killer. They made their case to the public, asking for any tips. Had anyone seen this bushy-haired stranger or knew who he was? Had anyone seen the shooting? As police were trying to drum up any leads on the bushy-haired stranger, they were also taking a hard look at Diane's odd behavior, her lack of emotion over Cheryl's murder, and the attempted murders of Christy and Danny. They wondered if there was more to the story, especially after Diane was allowed to visit Christy for the first time. Diane was led into Christy's room, and she sat by her bedside. Christy was awake, but unable to speak. Remember, she'd suffered a stroke, and as a result, the left side of her brain, which controlled her speech, had been damaged. Doctors weren't sure if she'd ever be able to speak again. But what happened next was troubling. Diane, at Christy's side, would squeeze her daughter's hand. As she said, I love you, but the words felt flat, emotionless. But it was Christy's reaction to her mother's love and touch was shocking. Christy didn't tear up or smile with emotion, as one might expect in seeing her mother for the first time after this horrific trauma. Christy's eyes widened as if she was afraid of her mother. And a staff member was shocked to see that Christy's heartbeat monitor, the readings were just going off the chart, from stable to extremely elevated. Hospital staff would share this encounter with investigators. It had been so upsetting to witness. This fragile child who had been brutally shot, who almost died, is unable to speak, hooked up to machines, surrounded by strangers, and yet, when she is reunited with her mother for the first time, instead of expressing emotions of happiness or waves of relief at a mother's touch, Christy's vitals go off the charts as if she's terrified? By this time, police had already been digging into Diane's background. They confirmed that she had recently moved from Arizona to Oregon with her three children to be closer to her parents, that she was recently divorced and was a part-time mail carrier. That all checked out. What wasn't adding up was Diane's story about what had happened that night, specifically some forensic anomalies related to the Nissan Pulsar. And they asked Diane if she would be willing to reenact the shooting with them in front of a car so that they could better visualize the sequence of events in real time. And Diane agreed. This reenactment would be captured on film. The camera zooms in on Diane as she's seen primping in her rearview mirror just moments before meeting the detectives. A police officer is standing in as the bushy-haired stranger. And Diane goes over it step by step, how she stepped out of the car, she refused to give up her keys, then the stranger shoots her children before demanding her car keys again, to which she pretends to throw the keys into the bushes, which in turn buys her a few seconds to slide back into the front seat of the car. But as she gets back in, she accidentally hits her cast on the steering wheel. Remember, she was shot in the forearm, and so she has this cast there still. And in reaction to hitting herself, she says, ow, and then giggles. It's like this whole reenactment had been a performance. She was acting like it was a fun game. But you can tell when she hit her cast on the steering wheel, it really did hurt and caught her off guard. As she starts to say that this hurt almost worse then, but suddenly she stops herself mid-sentence and she gets serious as if she almost let something slip. After hearing her say that, investigators perked up. It was clear Diane had made a mistake. 
and they speculated that she had stopped herself from saying, that almost hurt worse than when I shot myself. We'll be back after a quick break. Here's the reenactment. Again, it just seemed odd that she would say something like that, that she would act that way, that she would primp in the mirror before doing this reenactment. Like, how could any of that matter after what had happened to her children? But what was even more disturbing was the realization that the way Diane recreated the crime exposed a hard truth. If the shooting had occurred as Diane explained, why wasn't there any blood spatter or smears on the driver's side window if she'd been shot in the arm as she was sitting in the front seat of the car? And why wasn't there any gunpowder residue there? If she'd been shot the way she described, there should have been gunshot residue on the driver's side door or on the interior door panel. And there should have been blood on the steering wheel. The thinking was that if Diane was shot in the forearm, she would instinctively clutch the wound with her uninjured hand. And that if she did that, there would have been blood on her hand and blood smeared onto the steering wheel. It just didn't add up. And when they looked at the x-rays from Diane's arm, the angle at which she was shot appeared to be consistent with someone shooting themselves at the arm to make it look like someone else pulled the trigger. Because of the lack of forensic evidence to prove her claim of how the struggle had gone down, a more horrifying and likely reality based on the lack of evidence was coming to the surface. Was it possible that Diane had gunned down her own children and then shot herself when she was well away from the car before disposing the gun at another location and then going to the hospital? When detectives interviewed Diane, she said she owned only two guns and that neither of them was a 22, which was the type of weapon used in the shooting. But when detectives went to Arizona and talked to Diane's ex, Steve Downs, he confirmed that Diane owned three guns and that one of the three was a 22. During his interview with investigators, Steve also said that his ex-wife had been obsessed with her previous lover, a man named Robert Knickerbocker. Knickerbocker had been a married man that Diane had met at the post office in Arizona. And this wasn't the first time that police had heard of Knickerbocker. In fact, when they searched Diane's home, they found a diary with pages and pages devoted to her love of Knickerbocker, or Nick as she called him. These pages became a window into Diane's obsession with this married man. Diane's diary revealed that she blamed Nick's wife for ending their relationship. And she had high hopes that Nick would ultimately leave his wife and move to Oregon to be with her. In an entry dated less than a month before the shooting, it was clear from Diane's prose that she blamed the wife for Nick ending their romance. Diane would write, quote, What happened? I'm so confused. What could she have said or done to make you act this way? I spoke to you this morning for the last time. It broke my heart to hear you say, Don't call or write. I still think of you as my best friend and my only lover. And you keep telling me to go away and find somebody else. You've got to be kidding. But Nick had made it crystal clear to Diane that he didn't want to be with her long term. He wouldn't even spend time with 
Diane and her kids because he just felt like they were carrying on this torrid affair that had spiraled out of control. And he didn't want to expose her children to this. This was just a fling for him that became something that had mushroomed out of control. Nick didn't want kids. He didn't want to leave his wife. And he didn't want to be with Diane, but she just wouldn't let it go. In this passage, Diane plays with rhyme as she fantasizes about her love for Nick. And it's this love that is bringing her to a breaking point. Quote, I love you more than could your wife, yet it's brought sorrow to my life. I just keep hoping and hanging on. How much longer can I be strong? When police interviewed Knickerbocker, he was very candid with the detectives. His relationship with Diane had come to a head when she'd asked him to say who he loved more, Diane or his wife. And when Nick said his wife, Diane flew into a rage. She was screaming and yelling at him. And after he drove away, Diane would follow him to his home that he shared with his wife. And there on the doorstep, she would scream and pound on the door for hours. And after that, in Nick's mind, it was over. Because after that night, Diane had put in a transfer at the post office, and she moved to Oregon. And Nick had been overjoyed, relieved to be rid of Diane and the memory of an affair that had morphed into a total nightmare. But that was short-lived. Even though she was over a thousand miles away, she wasn't giving up on her Nick. He would come back to her. And she was willing to do anything to make that happen. Investigators would learn that shortly after Diane had arrived at the hospital, shouting that her children had been shot, the first call that she made wasn't to the children's father, but to her ex-lover, Nick. In Diane's eyes, the relationship with her and Nick wasn't over by a long shot. Even after their huge blowout, which prompted Diane to move from Arizona to Oregon, she had never stopped writing letters to Nick. It didn't matter to Diane that he sent back her love letters unopened. She still wrote and called him, and Nick would tell police that he was convinced. He believed that Diane had shot her own kids to be with him. The more they dug into Diane, the more evidence they felt pointed to her guilt. But it was all circumstantial. And in the meantime, Diane is giving media interviews left and right. While Christy and Danny were still healing from their life-threatening injuries, Diane Downs was speaking to the media in a series of bizarre and head-scratching interviews. Here's Diane speaking with reporter Anne Yeager as she describes how she felt watching her kids being gunned down. When this man shot my daughter, my first reaction was to snap back to my childhood, to the pain that had happened to me back then, my marriage, my entrapment by society. This man was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He had more power because he had a gun. And I stood there and I looked at Christy reaching and the blood that just kept gushing out of her mouth. And, and what do you do? The gun kept firing and firing and firing. And it, it, it made, it was monotonous. It just kept going. It was like a slow motion picture. When he swung around, he was pointing when he swung around, it hit the tips of my fingers. The gun hit the tips of my fingers. Mm -hmm. And that snapped me. And I went, wait a minute. I'm not trapped by society. I don't care if he is bigger. If I stand here and I say, yeah, here, take the keys. I mean, there's nothing I can do. You win because you have the gun. My kids are going to die. And I'm not going to let my kids die. And so instead of giving him the keys, I feigned throwing the keys. 
To many, Diane's demeanor is odd and off-putting, something viewers keyed into right away. Danny's going to walk again. I don't care if we just have to will him to walk. I think he's going to walk. The doctors all say he won't. But I know that your mind controls your body, and if I can love him enough and encourage him enough, I believe he'll walk. Given what happened to her children, it seems over the top that she would focus on her own pain and suffering as a result of her minor gunshot wound. Everybody says you sure were lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about two months. It is very painful. It is still painful. The scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I want to or not. I don't think I was very lucky. I think my kids were lucky. If I had been shot the way they were, we all would have died. In these interviews, it's clear that Diane has an agenda. She's trying to use logic here to convince people that it just didn't make sense that she was the killer. I mean, if she wanted to murder her children in cold blood, why would she waste her time driving them to the hospital? Why would I have taken my kids to the hospital? Wouldn't I have made sure they were dead and then cried crocodile tears? That's insane to think that I would do such a thing and then bring the the witnesses in against myself. That's crazy. But it wasn't crazy. A witness would come forward who told a different story about Diane rushing to the hospital the night of the shooting. Remember, Diane had told investigators that she had raced to the hospital after the shooting, knowing that her children's very lives depended on it. But a man would come forward describing a very different scenario. How he remembered seeing a Nissan Pulsar, but it was driving really slow along Old Mohawk Road at the time of the shooting, around five to seven miles per hour. Two months after the shooting, detectives and Diane have a really intense two-hour interview where they apply pressure, but Diane is adamant that it was the bushy-haired stranger. And then, out of the blue, during this interview, she changes her story. She says that the killer was someone she knew. Change it by saying that this guy knew you now, he knew your tattoo, he knows about you, uh, he threatened you. That's a hell of a change from what you said the first time around. There was no reason for you not to say that at the very beginning. Okay. No reason in your mind. And I have one man sitting here looking at me with a face of stone. I have another man over there smoking a cigarette, 90 miles an hour, and tasting. You're not my best buddies. I wouldn't go drinking with you, that's for sure. You feel guilty about what you did, Diane? No, because I didn't do anything wrong. And I wouldn't change it if I could. My kids and I always took the back road. Trying to find out who shot your kid. And if it was and you, I'm that's doing what I can. I, mean, I agree. If it's you, you're going to take the fall for it. If it I wasn't agree. you, then uh, I'm going to quit this job. I'll make you a deal, okay? Next time I remember something, yeah. You can find the guy yourself because I know I didn't do it. And you can chase your little tails for the next 20,000 years if that's what it takes. You, you don't know. like my health, you can it. You're real confident in yourself, aren't you? I know that I didn't do it. Come on, Diane. It's your turn at back. Since you guys seem to think that I should have brought Diane with me, I will gain myself because I know who did it. You do know who did it. Yes, I do. I damn sure do. You know him by yes, name? I yes, I do. Yeah. You saw him shoot your kid. Yeah. Pretty important. And I saw him grab my arm and yank my arm out and shoot my arm and say, now try to get away with it. And I'm leaving because I know who did it. Bye. The time is now 1746 and... Diane is just a part of the office. We're concluding the case. Diane had become a sort of media darling and also a villain, depending on who you talk to. Her supporters saw her as a victim of an overzealous investigation and that she was just a victim of a rush to judgment and character assassination. 
However, the other camp believed that she was a cold-blooded killer, the most vile of all, a mother who not only didn't protect her children, but had gunned them down to be with her former lover. Between her public interviews with the media and the fact that police hadn't arrested anyone, it was almost like Diane was baiting the police in these really high-profile media interviews to arrest her so that she could actually prove her innocence. She was pleading for her kids to come home. Christy and Danny had been placed in protective custody. The location was a closely guarded secret, especially from Diane, who was not allowed to see or speak with her children. But investigators didn't arrest Diane. They absolutely believed that she was guilty, but they were giving Christy, Diane's surviving daughter, time to heal. They had loads of circumstantial evidence, but they didn't have a smoking gun. The murder weapon was never found, and they didn't have an eyewitness who What Diane didn't realize is that investigators were biding their time because they believed there was someone who could tell them who the shooter was. It's ironic that in one interview, Diane would say that she was pinning her hopes on her daughter getting her out of this. Christy woke up, and as I say, she may be the only one to get me out of this. Would I have brought her to the hospital? Wouldn't she be the one that I would make sure is dead? There are too many holes in it. Remember, because of that stroke, Christy would have to relearn to speak but it was deeper than physical wounds. After the shooting, Christy was too traumatized to speak. She began working with a therapist, and slowly, she began to work through her fear. In the beginning, Christy's therapist would ask her to write down on a piece of paper who had shot her and her siblings. But the therapist wouldn't look at the note. Instead, they asked her to throw the name into the fire as a way to develop trust. This trust exercise was performed many times until one day, Christy didn't throw the paper away in the fire. She opened it up and shared who was responsible for the murder of her sister Cheryl and the attempted murder of her and her brother. She wrote, My mom. We'll be back after a quick break. On February 28, 1984, Eight months after the shooting, Diane Downs walked inside the post office where she was employed as a part-time letter carrier and was arrested for the murder of her daughter Cheryl and the attempted murders of Christy and Danny. The 31-day trial made national headlines that were salacious and sensational. Diane Downs didn't act as anyone might expect. For one thing, when she was taken into custody, she was pregnant. Diane, knowing her ovulation cycle, like the back of her hand, had shown up at a man's house on her postal route with a fifth of alcohol and was like, can I come in? It was alleged that Diane Downs had seduced this man, hoping her pregnancy would win sympathy from a jury. The thought process was, if she got pregnant, people might look at her and say, how could a woman who loves children actually kill her own? During the trial, video footage captured Diane's every move as she was swept in and out of the courtroom. Diane gave off the impression that she was enjoying the trial, smiling and almost basking in the attention. She would look at the cameras and flip her bangs with a smirk and downcast eyes. By then, she was already being compared to Princess Diana. There was a vague resemblance, which Diane appeared to be hamming up in front of the cameras whenever possible. The prosecution presented their theory, which was that her children were in the way of this relationship with her former lover, Nick, and that she wanted them out of the way so she could have her man. 
Ballistic experts testified that the bullets that were taken from Diane's home had identical marks found on the cartridge casings that were at the scene of the crime. It was believed that some of the unfired 22 shells that were found at Diane's duplex had at one time been worked through the 22's mechanism that was believed to be the murder weapon. But without the gun, that evidence could be refuted. Both Diane's ex-husband and lover testified that Diane had owned a 22, but Diane denied having the gun. When Christy took the stand, you could hear a pin drop. She was nine years old when she bravely walked into the courtroom. She would recount what had happened that night, that her mom had stopped the car on the rural road, then got out and walked to the trunk. Christy said that her mom opened the trunk and then shut it. She returned to the car with something in her hand. And then Christy heard the first shot, directed at Cheryl. When the district attorney, Frederick Hughie, asked Christy, how she knew that her mother had fatally shot her sister, she replied, I watched her. My mom did it. Christy went on to say that she saw her mother lean over the backseat of the car and shoot her brother, and then her. Diane Downs would testify in her own defense, and she denied that she'd shot her children because they stood in the way of her being with her former lover. In June of 1984, after deliberating for 36 hours, the jury returned a unanimous verdict, guilty on all charges. Diane was sentenced to life in prison, plus 50 years. In 1986, Christy and Danny Downs were adopted by the lead prosecutor, Fred Hughie. But the story doesn't end here. In 1987, around the same time that Anne Rule published her best-selling book on the case, Small Sacrifices, Diane Downs escaped from a woman's correctional institution in Salem, Oregon. Diane had gotten friendly with a fellow inmate who shared with her that her husband, a man named Wayne Seifer, lived a few blocks away from the prison. Diane saw an opportunity. She padded herself with three sets of clothes layered on top of each other. And then, when no one was looking, she scaled the 15-foot prison fence that had razor wire at the top. Up and over, Diane made a beeline for her cellmate's husband. Remember, he lived a few blocks away from the prison. Apparently, Wayne Seifer shared this place with two roommates. Diana just showed up and knocked on the door. One of the roommates opened the door, and she was like, Can I speak with Wayne? When Wayne came to the door, she was like, Can I stay? And he said yes. Wayne would claim that he was nursing a hangover at the time that Diane showed up. He would tell authorities that he just went back to bed. But he says later that Diane came to his room naked, and introduced herself by a different name. This introduction set the stage for their 10-day romance that was being consummated as a 14-state manhunt was underway by law enforcement. Police didn't have any leads at first, but at some point, one of the detectives goes back to Diane's cell and looks through her stuff. He finds a clipboard with blank stationery and a map of Mexico. But he's not convinced that Diane is headed there. And in a move straight out of a Nancy Drew series, the detective lifts the stationery that's on the clipboard up to the light and sees some indentations. It looked like a map with an address and that the house associated with the address was the residence of Wayne Seifer, Diane's cellmate's husband. Forty officers would descend on that house where they found Diane in Wayne's bed. She made a move for a BB gun that was right next to her. But an officer shut that down, saying, Don't do that! And she ended up going quietly. 
This was 10 days after she'd escaped. And when she was apprehended, she claimed that she had escaped to get revenge on the bushy-haired stranger. Wayne basically spilled his guts, but he couldn't really explain why he didn't just turn her in, other than blaming his drug use. In the end, he pleaded guilty to hindering prosecution for harboring Diane, and he was sentenced to six months in a restitution center and five years of probation. Five years was tacked on to Diane's life sentence plus 50 years for that escape. In 1988, both Anne Rule and Diane Downs were guests on an episode of Oprah, and it was a very contentious interview between Anne and Diane. Oprah asked Diane why she got pregnant again after her children were shot. You were pregnant at trial. Why did you get pregnant again? Another real bad time in my life at that time. Um, it would <laughs> real bad time in my life. Mm -hmm. It's. I don't know that I could explain it all in, in two minutes here, but I was extremely lonely. I missed my kids desperately. I had just seen Christy on the 2nd of October, and it, it just, it's like opening a wound and pouring salt in. I was extremely lonely, beyond belief and beyond explanation. And on October 13th, I just went and got pregnant because I was so lonely. I love my children. I miss my children. And, and I know that sounds simplistic. It really does. And I have to admit that. And that's why I say there's so much more feeling inside that I can give in two minutes. Mm -hmm. So you say that on October 2nd you saw Christy. You saw Christy against court order. What'd you say yeah. to her that day? I love you. And Oprah asked Diane about Nick. Well, according to um, <laughs> police testimony in Anne's book, when he was first questioned by the police with his wife, who knew about this affair. Oh, that yes, he was, with his wife. Yeah, with his wife. He said then that he was afraid because he believed that you had shot your children because of him. Yeah, and I, so, I don't know what to say to that. I mean, geez, that's his problem and not mine. I mean, that's his paranoia and his fears. Give, you know, give me a break. I, I'm not the one that said that. Anne Rule says the number one question people would ask her about her book, Small Sacrifices, was related to Diane's mental health. First thing people say to me is, of course, she had to be crazy. And Diane is eminently sane. She's very bright. She suffers and is diagnosed from three personality disorders. Basically, she's antisocial, meaning no conscience, no remorse. So you can do what you want, and you never worry about it afterwards. Secondly, she's histrionic, which I think she's demonstrated this morning, meaning she loves to be on stage. And third... Excuse me, can I say something to that? She, which is great if you're doing a TV show, yeah. I must say. Yeah. Uh, Thank she, you. The narcissistic personality disorder means the narcissist feels entitled to whatever he or she wants, and it doesn't matter who gets hurt. But all of that doesn't mean there are a lot of narcissistic people out there. There are a lot, a lot of, of antisocial people uh, running for office. Antisocial people uh, who, d who don't pick up a gun and shoot the kids or shoot their neighbor. There are degrees. All of us know sociopaths or antisocial personalities. There are degrees just as there would be in uh, learning disability and intelligence and anything else. Why do you think um, she did it, if you think she did it? I think Diane believed then that children could be replaced. And when she bought a bronze unicorn and had the children's name engraved on the base and the date, May 13th, when I think she planned to do it, when she took them to the ocean, I lost her nerve and it took six days. I think it would, literally, she could put the children on the shelf. She could have Lou or Nick is his real name. 
And later on, since she's so fertile, she could have more children. Mm -hmm. uh, most of us cannot even fathom that. Those of us who are mothers uh, can't fathom any of it. Which brings up an important point as we wrap up this episode. How Herculean of a task it feels to fathom a mother murdering her own children for any reason. But to be with a lover feels like an abomination. And according to retired FBI profiler Ken Lanning, who is also the author of the book Love, Bombs, and Molesters, an FBI agent's journey about his work with the BSU, most people just do not want to believe that a mother would willingly kill her own children. Most people have a hard time believing that a parent would do this. Interestingly enough, more people are willing to admit that the slimy father would do it and harder to admit that the mother would do it. Also, many people believe, well, the mother killed it. You talk about the biological mother? I read one study that indicated that there were more cases of the biological mother doing this than, let's say, the stepmother or adopted mother. But in any case, there are different patterns, and you have to look at and compare, as the old cliche goes, apples with apples, oranges with oranges. Ken and I discuss the FBI's research into the statistics around parents who kill their own kids and the supposed reasons of why they did so. One category has been called family annihilators. An example of this is a case that we covered in a previous episode called The Bunker. It's episode 18, where a father had murdered his wife and daughter and the family pets to go hide away in a bunker. And then you have the cases where it's an extreme version of child abuse. The most common abuses there are, physical, emotional, psychological, sexual abuse, are parents. So you have some people who physically abuse their children, and sometimes in this physical abuse, they go too far. And you whack your kid, you do this, you do that, and all different things, and suddenly, every once in a while, you've gone so far that the child is now fatally injured, and the child's dead. And so some of these individuals then try to cover it up and then say they did this, but they did this. I'm not going to say, I'm not just going to call it simply an accident, but maybe the death of the child, maybe a better term, might be inadvertent. So the child dies, and then they try to cover it up, and sometimes they report the child as abducted and so on. This is the most common type of filicide. That's the term used to describe when a parent kills their own child. And there's also something called spousal revenge. And Ken says statistics reveal that this is mostly men who take revenge against their spouse by killing their child. And then there are the parental abductions. You know, the Amber Alert, where you might think that the child's been taken by a parent. It's not a stranger. It's a custody thing. But Ken says these kids are in serious danger. None of these are the huge numbers of these cases. We're not talking about hundreds, you know, 50,000 cases. We're talking about maybe a total of 500 cases a year fit into this category. And also the interesting thing is when you talk about this stuff, you know, a parent killing their child, we often think about child as a child, somebody under 18, but sometimes parents kill their 30-year-old child or their 40-year-old child. And so you can't have adults who are victimized and that would still fit the definition to how you defined it. But in these cases, what we're really talking about with Diane Downs is basically a kind of case I think is the hardest one for people to really kind of deal with and understand is somebody who kills their child because they don't want the child anymore. The idea that a parent wouldn't do anything to protect their child just feels like it goes against nature. 
what the average person does is you listen to the story. Well, why didn't they want their child? And then depending on what that story is, they have different attitudes about it. And the one that people probably have the worst attitude about is a case like the Susan Smith case or what appears to be in the Diane Downs case. They didn't want their children because they met some guy who didn't want children and they decided to get rid of their children so they could have a better relationship with some guy. That seems to be extremely selfish and horrible. And it's very hard for people to understand that. But at the end of the day, despite my feelings on the subject, I share Ken's assessment that it's really dangerous to be biased against someone for the way that they act. We discuss confirmation bias and the danger of this idea of how a person should act when they are a suspect, especially when it comes to the way that Diane Downs was acting. If I was a prospective juror, it would be really difficult for me to be impartial. I've had to do on many instances is caution investigators, including one case that I was involved in that I vividly remember involving a mother who had gone to somebody else's house where she was doing some accounting type work. And she had her two-year-old daughter with her. And the daughter was just out playing in the yard. But the daughter kind of wandered away and they lost track of her for not a long time, but, you know, maybe five, 10, 15 minutes or something like that. And they went out to look for her and they couldn't find her. And they searched and searched and they called the police and everybody came out and the search teams were out there and they had the sniffing dogs and all that kind of stuff and the helicopters and all this equipment and they supposedly traced the scent of the child up the street to the next cross street and then the scent just went away so they figured there was a guy up there who grabbed her put her in the car and on and on and on but after two or three days of searching and looking for a missing child not knowing what happened to her but basically in that particular case when we sat down and we're trying to discuss where we were going to go from here and so on we had a meeting with the parents and the family and the mother and so on and so forth when the meeting was over the police came out after the parents were gone and they said oh my god did you see the way she reacted she was just so cold and unfeeling and at that point almost all of them were convinced that she had done something to the child well it turns out the child had just turned the opposite direction from where the dogs traced the scent walked down to the water that was just a short distance away, went into the water wearing her diaper, went down under the water, and her body surfaced two or three days later. It was totally an accident. And you say, well, that woman, what they were judging that woman was not what, what she was all about, but always this thing that you see over and over again in these cases. That's not how I would behave. To this day, Diane Downs still says that she is innocent. She became eligible for parole for the first time in 2008, still adamant that she's innocent. In fact, each time Diane has come up for parole, it has been denied. For this episode, reporting by KATU-TV was helpful. So was Anne Rule's book, Small Sacrifices, The Oprah Winfrey Show, ABC News, and Investigation Discovery. Before I let you go, if you're looking for more Murder Chronicles and you haven't already, check out our bonus content where my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I discuss these episodes and also have been known to ruminate on a variety of totally random topics of conversation. And as always, thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.